And in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4 this morning, if you would turn in your Bible there, and once you have found Hebrews 4, please turn to Isaiah 55. Hebrews 4 and Isaiah chapter 55. Hebrews 4 and Isaiah 55. And as soon as you have it, stand up, if you will. Let's read God's Word together. What do you say? Okay? Hebrews chapter 4 and Isaiah chapter 55 in your Bible. In Hebrews chapter 4, it's a fairly familiar verse to you. It's verse 12. Why don't we all read together? Good and loud. Everybody put your heart into it. Let's read it. What do you say? For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, and I, keep your hand there because we're going to flip back and forth between these. Isaiah 55 and verse 11. Isaiah 55 and 11. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void or empty, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I have sent it. Thank you. You may be seated. In every area of life, there's a few simple disciplines, not very many in any area that I can think about, but in every area of life, there's a few simple disciplines that if a person will practice those, they will be successful in their life. For example, in the field of education, show me a student who will take notes and listen in class, go home and do their homework review a little bit before a test, and they'll do all right in most cases. And I think about health. If you watch your diet, your nutrition, lay off of the Twinkies, and if you'll just watch your diet a little bit and eat healthily, and then you'll get your rest, and if you'll exercise, then you're probably going to have reasonably good health in life. A few simple habits, not many, will make you a success. The problem we have is that so many people just throw caution to the winds, live very undisciplined, and uh, do whatever they want, and then don't worry about the consequences. And unfortunately, the consequences always come around, don't they? Cause and effect is always operating. I've always tried to watch my diet a little bit, and I've tried to exercise fairly regularly. My goal has always been that when people pass by that box that I'll be lying in one day, I want them to say, he's the healthiest-looking corpse I've ever seen. <laughs> and I don't, want to have, I don't want the undertaker to have to get on the lid of the box to get it down, neither. You know, I, I want to just click, and it's real simple. So a few simple things make you successful in whatever endeavor of life and in your spiritual life, I want to talk to you about the single most important habit. The message is the living, powerful Word of God. 
the living, powerful Word of God. And the little simple thing is, is this. The single most important spiritual discipline you can have is a lifelong, daily habit of seriously studying and then applying God's Word. Let me say it again. I'll read it off my note. The single most important discipline in your spiritual life is a lifelong daily habit of seriously studying and applying God's Word to your life. Now, I thought about every word of that and rewrote that sentence two or three times because I really wanted you to get it. It's what I would like to ask you to do this year. Usually, I put a big emphasis at the first of the year on people reading their Bible. We put Bible reading guides out there of various types, and I'll talk about it in the pulpit. I will try to encourage you to read your Bible in some sort of orderly fashion. Some people will read it all the way through. Some people will read it uh, over a two-year plan. Some people will read portions of it, various plans, but the big thing is that every day you read it and you study it, that you develop the habit of beginning the day with the Bible in your lap and your knees bent at the throne of God's grace. And I thought this year, I'm going to start early. I'm going to really back up on this and really push this because if you will do this, you will be spiritually successful. If you don't, I'm going to be honest with you, there's not much anybody can do for you because you're violating such a basic concept, a basic discipline of the Christian life. And when people begin to do it, it makes a difference in their life. A few Sunday nights ago, we had an ordination service. Grant Skelton was ordained as a minister of the gospel, already a missionary, but wanted formal ordination in his life. And Grant Part of the program that night was that he give his testimony. And he talked about being reared in a Christian home. And you all know his parents, Bob and Sue, godly people, long, been, been faithful for how many years here. And he grew up, he rarely ever missed Sunday school. They're probably here 50 weeks a year. Uh, he came to Sunday school every Sunday. He came to Sunday morning worship. He came on Sunday night. He came on Wednesday night, just a typical young person, a kid in the, growing up in the church. He went away to Francis Marion and earned a degree. Then he went to Bob Jones and earned a theological degree. And then he earned a master, another master's degree in business. And he was a good, good young man. Not one thing moral, clean, and all that. But I don't know that I would say he was on fire for the Lord. And then he said, one day in a Sunday school class, the teacher said to me, the teacher challenged us to every day this year seriously look into God's Word, get a notebook, write down some, the main thought, the main thing you got from that. Begin to keep that over the days ahead. Read it occasionally. Go back and review it. When you have a need in your life, you, uh, you, you go back and look at your notes and look at your Bible. He said, I began to practice that, and a fire began to start in my heart, and I began to change. I wasn't doing things out of duty anymore. 
I was doing things because I wanted to. God put a desire in my heart to be my best for him. And boy, when he was giving that testimony, the hair raised up on my arms. And I thought, what a blessing to hear a young person. He got it. He got it. And I want everybody here to get it. My goal when I walk into this pulpit is to inspire you to know the Word of God, but just as importantly to love the Word of God, to submit yourself to the teaching of the Word of God. If you don't, very frankly, and I'm not trying to lose anybody, but you might as well not come. What good do you think it does to come here and go through the motions? It's probably why a lot of people don't come. It's probably why a lot of people say, I don't get anything out of it. Very honestly, my dear friend, you didn't bring anything to get it in. You didn't come with an attitude that you wanted to get anything from it. And so I have my role as a shepherd. I am to study hard and apply myself diligently to mastering the Word of God and then giving it out. But you have a role, and your role is to sit here and say, I want to hear from God today. And once I've heard from the Lord today, then I want to go out and I want to live my life. I want to order my life in the fashion of what he was talking about. So today I'm asking you to think deeply about what I'm saying to you because I challenge you to make the Word of God the priority in your life, the priority in your life. Priority, P-R-I-O-R, prior. Prior comes before. The word priority has the idea of whatever is priority in my life comes before other things. It is prior. Jesus described prior in Matthew 6 and 33, seek first the kingdom of God. He made the word of God priority. He made the Christian life priority. Prior, before, they used to call the leader of a monastery the prior, meant that he was the number one ranking in authority and position in, in the monastery. And so I want you to make the Word of God prior, that which is first in your life. And when you do, I promise you, you'll have a life worth living. Now, why is it so important that you do that? Because the testimony of the Bible is very, very clear. You, you cannot read the Bible too far too many pages until you understand that the Bible says, it tells you what it is. The Bible is the written communication of God to mankind. If you want a definition of God's Word, here it is. The Bible is the written communication of Almighty God to human beings. God spoke that Word to holy men of old, who wrote it down in 1 Peter, you will find that described. Those men wrote it down. And then secondly, God promised to preserve his word. So people today say, I know those men wrote it down. Maybe they were inspired, but how do I know what I have is inspired? Because Jesus himself said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word will never pass away. 
says the heavens and the earth will pass away, but his word will not pass away. So God not only inspired the word, but he preserved, he promised us to preserve the word. And there's no doubt in my mind, but what we have it today. And so it is entirely true, your Bible. It is completely accurate. It is authoritative in all that it says, meaning it is the authority in a Christian's life. If it is not the authority in your life, my friend, I say it to you as lovingly as I know how, but if God's Word is not the final authority for what is right and wrong and what you should do and not do in your life, you, you really ought to check up. You really ought to check up. You've got a deeper spiritual issue because it is not only true, it is our final authority. And subjectively, what it does for my own soul, my own spirit, my own attitude, lets me know the power of the living Word of God. And I know that when I'm not quite what I ought to be and where I ought to be with the Lord, I can tell it when I pick up my Bible. Old D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, said it like this. He said, this book will keep you from sin, and sin will keep you from this book. And when I'm not where I ought to be with the Lord, this book gets dry and tasteless and has no appeal. It's like eating soda crackers without anything else. But when my heart is warm toward the Lord, man, this book is like the best delicacy I could possibly imagine. This book will keep you from sin, but sin will keep you from this book. So I want to urge you to make it a priority. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 with me. The first thing it tells me is that God's Word is alive. For the Word of God is quick. Circle that word quick in our KJV that we use here at the church. The old-fashioned English word quick simply means alive. You use it all the time, and you don't even think about it. People, I, people tell me, oh, I can't understand the King James. Well, yes, you can. You say, I broke my fingernail down to the what? Quick. And it hurt there because that's where the life is. And a young woman goes to the doctor and she said, I felt something. And he says, you felt quickening. You're pregnant. That was the baby moving. There's life there. We use it in the same way. And the Word of God is living. It is quickening. It is alive. It is infused with life, and the life that's in the Scripture, and I mean literally life when I say that, it is the life of God Himself. And so it speaks to my heart. It's not a dusty old history book. It is the living Word of Almighty God, and it speaks to my heart. It touches my emotions. It touches my mind. It touches me in a way, honestly, that nothing else does. The greatest preacher doesn't touch me like this. It is living. And notice it also is powerful. It is quick, alive, and it's powerful. The word for power there is spelled like this, E-N-E-R-G-E-S. What do you think of? 
root word for energy, our word energy. So the word of God is alive and it is full of energy, full of energy, full of power, if you will. So it not only contains life, but it also contains the power to impart that life to us. And when I fill my mind and my soul and my heart with the Word of God, then I get the energy of God. I get the desire to please God, to live godly. And nobody can give you that apart from this. I I don't mean to sound negative here, but Your spiritual life can't consist of reading the daily bread every day. Buying you a cheap little devotional book and reading for three minutes, uh uh, you're not going to get enough there. There's nothing wrong with what you read, but there's just not enough there. You need some strong meat, you need some protein, you need some carbs. You need nutrition that's full and well balanced. You need something that'll give you life and energy. And you get that. From God's Word. Now go to Isaiah 55 and verse 11, the other verse that we read, and uh, just keep your hand there. We're going to use them a time or two. But I want you to notice that the last, in the middle of that verse, there is a great promise. My word that goeth forth out of my mouth, God said, the word that I've spoken, the Scripture, it will not return void. Void meaning empty. It won't return empty-handed. It won't It won't go out and there not be some impact and some effect. That's a promise. And read the rest of the promise. It shall accomplish that which I please. Whatever God wants it to do, it's going to do. God's word doesn't go out and there not be any impact or any effect. It will accomplish what God intended it to accomplish, and it will prosper in the thing whereinto that I sent it. Now, what a wonderful promise. It always accomplishes what God wants done. So I preach the Word of God today, and I give the invitation, which I will in a few moments. I always do. And I trust that people are going to come, but nobody comes. That happens sometimes. Nobody responds. And I've had people walk out the door because I guess maybe I showed my disappointment. I don't know, but they walk out the door. Preacher, that was a good sermon. I know nobody came, but blah, 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 blah. You know, they're trying to encourage me. You know what? That sermon, if I preach the Word of God, it's going to accomplish exactly what God wanted it to accomplish. And whether anybody responds or not, God says His Word is not going to return to Him void. And there's going to be results. Sometimes, sometimes that Word of God convicts people of their sin, but they don't come and say they're convicted of their sin. And sometimes that Word of God, it melts people's hearts, and it deals, it gives guidance in a way and in a manner that uh, there's no, uh, no visible return in here. You can't see it. I can't see it, but it doesn't mean it's not happening. I'll tell you what else the Word of God does, and this is the negative side of it. It hardens, and people sit here, and they say, oh, I'm not going to do that, and a week later, they say it again, and a month later, they say it again, they keep on saying that over and over and over. I'm not going to paint. I'm not going to do anything about that. You know what? They get hard, and people can go to church every Sunday and go to a Bible-preaching Baptist church 
And you know what they can do? They can get hard as a rock spiritually because they decided I'm not going to do it. They hardened, they seared their conscience is what the New Testament refers to it as. Now, let me tell you a story, kind of long. I don't like long stories generally in the pulpit, but this one's a little longer than I normally like, but I was reminded of it this week because two days ago was December the 7th. And those of you who are old enough will remember what December the 7th is. It's the day in 1941 when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. And uh, our president, President Roosevelt, called it a day that will live in infamy. It was a terrible, probably the day when the most uh, military, the greatest number of military personnel in the history of this country were killed. In, uh, in an official battle of the country. Well, there's a real-life story that comes out of that event that demonstrates to you the power and the life of the Word of God, the very point that I've been teaching here for a few moments. There was a man there named Mitsuo Fuchida, Mitsuo Fuchita had grown up and was early trained to be a military man, went to, went to military college. He was the commander for the Japanese forces that day. He led the attack on Pearl Harbor. He was a distinguished pilot in the Navy of the Japanese at that time and a distinguished commander. In fact, he commanded six aircraft carriers, and 423 aircraft were on those carriers. So he was one of the most powerful men in the Japanese military. And on December the 7th, 1941, he was the one who spoke into his microphone on his plane, Torah, 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 meaning attack, that we're going to make the attack now. And the sky was full of Japanese aircraft that came flying over Pearl Harbor from every direction, in fact, and they brought that destruction upon our forces. A movie was made. Some of you have seen it. I've seen it on television called Torah, Torah, Torah. It's the story of the attack on Pearl Harbor. In that attack, the, almost the entire U.S. Pacific fleet was destroyed. If it wasn't destroyed, it was so damaged that it had to be almost rebuilt and America was in a terrible position after that because we almost had no uh, Navy at all over there in the Pacific Ocean. In fact, over 2,400 of our military personnel went to the bottom of Pearl Harbor that day, a day that will live forever in infamy, as our president said. Well, Mitsio had experienced a lot of close calls himself. It seemed that he was providentially escaping death. Over and over and over, it was as though there was some mysterious, protective, providential hand that was protecting him. He was on board ship far out into the Pacific on one occasion, and he began to have a stomach ache. They diagnosed it as uh, appendicitis. They weren't equipped for that kind of thing out there. And they actually took him up on the deck and in the open air, a surgeon opened him up and uh, took out his appendix. It was miraculous. He didn't die from infection and so on. 
Another time, he was on the deck of another ship, and a plane came over from the U.S. forces and hit, hit it with a bomb. He was blown into the sea and miraculously not seriously injured. He was ordered back to Japan away from his unit, and while he was in Japan, the United States liberated Guam. The admiral that he directly reported to and the rest of the staff that were his peers because they had lost Guam, they felt disgraced, and under the Samurai Code, they were to commit suicide. They all disemboweled themselves one day in a mass suicide with their own swords. Had he been there, he would have been expected and probably would have participated, but he was far away in, in Japan. And then they moved him to Hiroshima, and he was stationed in Hiroshima, and then... They called him back to Tokyo the day before the bomb fell on Hiroshima, and all of his unit was killed in that attack. So it was as if God somehow was providentially protecting him. After the war, though, was concluded, Mitsuo was so depressed. I quote from his book, he said, life had no, ta no taste. My life had no taste or meaning. But then two events in his life changed him forever. I, I should remind those of you who are hearing me today, little daily things that we don't think have any real significance sometimes are turning points in our life. We never know when God is going to work in a very, very specific and extraordinary way. And number one, two things happened in his life. Number one, he decided one day that he would go see his flight engineer who had sat beside him in the cockpit over and over. And so as he went to see this engineer, he found out that this engineer had become a Christian and that uh, he was living for the Lord. And Fuchita began to talk to him about it. He told Fuchita his story. And the story was this, that while he was a while he was uh, injured, or no, while he was a prisoner of war, there was a young American woman. Her name was Peggy Covell. Now, he's talking to his flight engineer, and uh, the flight engineer is telling him how he came to Christ. He said, this woman, Peggy Covell, was my nurse and cared for me as a POW. And one day, she told me about her life. She said her parents were American missionaries to Japan. And the Japanese, it became so dangerous, she had to leave Japan when the war was about to begin. So she moved to the Philippine Islands. But the Japanese attacked the Philippines and took over the area where she was and captured her parents. And, of course, there, when the war started, there was this deep hatred for the United States. And so Peggy Covell's parents, these missionary people, they're in this Japanese prison in the Philippines. She said they tried to live for the Lord even in the prison. They sang hymns every day. They read their Bibles when they were allowed them. They prayed. And they lived for the Lord a, a very exemplary Christian life. And then one day, the high-ranking officer called them in, pronounced a death sentence upon them. And they had them kneel down tied their hands behind them. And as they waited for their death 
to be carried out, the execution to be carried out, this family, this man and woman, Peggy Covell's parents, they began to pray for the ones who were about to kill them. And then they came in, and with a samurai sword, they beheaded both the man and the woman. And Peggy Covell became very, very bitter toward the Japanese, as you might expect. And then she began to practice her faith. She began to read her Bible. She began to understand that as a Christian, she couldn't live with that bitterness. He said to her one day, how could anyone forgive the Japanese for what they have done? And Peggy said, the Holy Spirit washed away my hatred and has replaced it with love for the Japanese people. And I'm going back to Japan to be a missionary. The flight engineer tells that story of his conversion. He said, that convinced me we don't have anything like that in our religion, nothing like that in our culture. It convinced him, and he became a Christian, and now he's talking to his old boss, his captain that he'd flown these missions with. That's incident number one. Meanwhile, there was another man, an American named Jacob DeShazer, Jacob DeShazer was a member of Doolittle's Raiders. Those of you who know a little bit about military history know that that was a group of pilots that when the only way they could go in and drop bombs in certain places in Japan, it was too far for the flight to, be, to, to go on the gasoline. They didn't have refueling in the air in those days. They, they went on this mission, and Doolittle's Raiders knew they were going to run out of gas. And they knew that they would probably be captured and that they would die. And they ran out of gas, and Jacob DeShazer was a bombardier. They shot his plane down, or he ran out of gas, I'm not sure which. And he was taken as a Japanese POW. And he was, in, he was a POW for 40 months in Japan. They tortured him every day. It was, I, I don't have time to describe it, it was beyond misery. And after 25 months of that imprisonment, somehow somebody smuggled to him a, a copy of part of the Bible, and he began to read it. He was malnourished. He was sick. He was depressed. But he had nothing else to do, and so he read the Bible. And he began to absorb its message and think about it. And he trusted Christ. He survived the war. He came home to the West Coast, went to a Bible college, prepared himself to preach the gospel, and then returned to Japan as a missionary. This was the story of Jacob DeShazer. He wrote his life story in the form of a little pamphlet, a little booklet, and the title of it was, I Was a Prisoner of Japan. And he tells the story in detail of his torture, his sufferings, and how he came to Christ. Well, one day, never having met Mitsio, of course, but Mitsio, who had met this flight engineer and was beginning to hear about Christ, he got off of the train in Tokyo. And I will read to you from his testimony in his own words what happened that day. He said, I saw an American distributing literature. When I passed by him, he handed me a pamphlet entitled, I Was a Prisoner of Japan, his life story. 
What I read was the fascinating episode which eventually changed my life. Since the Americans said he had found peace in the Bible, I decided to purchase one myself, despite my traditional Buddhist heritage. In the ensuing weeks, I read the book constantly and eagerly. And then I came to the climactic drama, The Crucifixion. I was reading in Luke chapter 23 at verse 34, the prayer of Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross. And he said these words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I was certainly one of those for whom he prayed that prayer. And right at that moment, I seemed for the first time to meet Jesus Christ. I understood the meaning of his death as a substitute for my own wickedness. And so in prayer, I requested him to forgive my sins and change me from a bitter, disillusioned ex-pilot into a well-balanced Christian with a purpose in living. I became a new person. The date was April the 14th, 1950. My complete view of life was changed by the intervention of the Christ I had always hated and ignored before. End of quote. And so Mitsio Fuchida, the man who led the attack on Pearl Harbor, became a Christian evangelist. He preached across Japan. He preached in China, in Korea, all across Asia. He came to the United States. He died, and shortly before, he became a United States citizen. Reader's Digest published his entire story many years ago in an article that they called From Pearl Harbor to Jesus Christ. What a wonderful story. And I recalled part of that story and then did a little research because I knew it was the week of December the 7th. And as I thought about what happened on that horrible day, and yet the man who led that attack came to a wonderful life of faith in Jesus Christ, and God used him wonderfully. In one single service over in Asia somewhere, he preached, and 500 people came to receive the Lord Jesus Christ simply because he was a hero over there. He was, he was one of the greatest military heroes that, that they had ever had. And uh, God used him in a wonderful way. Now, let's go back to the title of the message today. What do we call the message? I call it the living, powerful Word of God. And if that isn't the story of the power, not only of the Word of God, but the power of Christian literature, why do we give out tracts? You never know who you're going to give that track to. Joseph DeShazer, standing in a, a little shopping area of Tokyo, Japan that day, and throngs of people walking by him, and he's handing out his little life story. I was a prisoner of the Japanese. He had no idea that that man who put his hand out and took that pamphlet was the man who led the attack on Pearl Harbor, the greatest military hero in all of Japan. And he had no idea that man would read that, buy him a Bible, and come to know Jesus Christ. What a story. What a powerful, powerful testimony. Now go back with me to Isaiah 55. In the light of that story, what I've just told you. In Hebrews, we learned 
The Word of God is quick. It's powerful, meaning it is alive. It infuses life into the people who ingest it into their mind, into their brain. And it's full of power, and it will accomplish what God intends it to do. You know, I'm, I'd love to have every seat filled this morning. It's a terrible, rainy, cold, dreary day. I wish there were more people sitting here listening to God's Word this morning. But do you know what I've learned through these years? I've learned to say, you know, Lord, I'm going to stand up there and preach it the best I can. If there are five people here, it won't matter. You have a purpose. You're in charge. You're sovereign. You know what you're doing. Somebody will hear it somewhere, and God will use it. Let me tell you something. If you expose yourself to it, it is empowered of God to expose the real motives and intentions of your heart like you can't believe. Go back with me to Hebrews. We're going to wear out those two pages, aren't we? Go back with me to Hebrews chapter 4. You see the end of that verse there? Hebrews chapter 4, it's quick and powerful and all that. I've emphasized that, but let's look at the rest of it. Here's what it'll do. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces to the dividing of the soul and the spirit. You talk about finely sharpened, razor-sharp sword. It divides between the soul, the mind, the emotions, and the will, and the spirit, the part of us that relates to God. It even can divide between the joints and the marrow, the bones, a metaphor of how finely it divides and discerns. And look at the last phrase. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents or intentions. You know, you and I think we know our own heart, don't we? But Jeremiah 17, 9 says we don't even understand our own motivations. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. I don't even know all my own motivations. Some of them are selfish and prideful, perhaps. When I'm even trying to do, when I'm standing here preaching, watch out that I don't become prideful or arrogant or selfish in what I do or say. Because even doing good, I can do it for the wrong reason, the wrong motivation. And the Word of God is so sharp, so discerning, so powerful. It divides and discerns every single thought and intention that I have in my most, in my deepest subconsciousness. And if you expose yourself to it, you see what it's going to do? It's going to expose your real motives to yourself that you're not even aware of, maybe. It's going to expose the intentions of your own heart. Motivations you didn't need, you're not, of which you're not even aware, of which I'm not aware. Now, if you're a serious Christian, you welcome such exposure. Think with me. If you're a serious Christian, you're thankful when the Word of God exposes those things. And you say, oh, Lord, I'm so glad you've shown me that. That's an area in which I need to work. And it can lead me to repentance. It can lead me to growth. It can lead me to eventual blessing and success in my life. And when you make Bible study a priority, 
God is going to begin to work in your life. And when you see nominal Christians, they, they come to church and talk about ball games and golf and shopping and everything in the world and never have any, never open their mouth to anyone about the Word of God. I tell you, they need, you're probably talking to somebody who doesn't seriously stay in the Word of God. Probably what you're saying. Over and over, the Bible talks about us being doers of the Word, not just hearing the Word. Oh, the greatest fear that I have. You see, I've got to stand at the judgment seat of God and give account for every one of you. Somebody asked John MacArthur how many members. He said, he said, I got more than I need to give account for right now. And I feel that sometimes. I do my best. I never walk up here, but what I'm not prepared. I can promise you that. Clayton Simmons said Bill Monroe would rather have a heart attack than he would preach unprepared. I'm going to walk up here and I'm going to dish it out, but it, you have a responsibility to get it to, ladies and gentlemen. It, all the responsibility isn't just right here. When you make Bible study a priority, you're going to turn God loose in your life. He's going to begin working in your life. So how do you get started? Okay, I'm going to give you something really practical. Last point, how do you get started? Number one, invest in a good Bible. I don't understand how people can live in a $400,000 house and have a $8 Bible. That You have to have a magnifying glass to read it. That their mother gave them when they graduated from high school. And they haven't opened it since. <laughs> That's pretty good there. That just came to me. It's not even in my notes. <laughs> you live in a $400,000 house and got an $8 Bible. And then I can't get anything out of it. Well, no, you can't. I mean, the angels couldn't read it. A good Bible is going to cost you 25 to 100 bucks. Buy you a good Bible. You can afford it. 90% of you and those of you who can't, come and ask Clayton. He'll buy it for you. <laughs> Get you a good Bible. Get one with big enough print. It's legible and you can read it. Get you a King James Bible. And if you, if you can't understand the King James, and I understand that, get you a new King James. That's the next best. But get you a King James to bring to church because we're going to use the KJV here. And uh, maybe an NASB if you need a little help on the side. Get your study Bible. The King James Version study Bible is an excellent Bible. And it has helps and all those little words you don't understand and so on. And then buy you a good concordance, a strong concordance, strong for the strong, you know? So get you a strong concordance because when you don't know a word, you can look it up. You can even see what the Greek and Hebrew words were and the original meanings of those words and all that. Get you a concordance. And then come to church with the attitude, I'm coming to get something today. I'm bringing my Bible, and I hope that I'm going to get something that's just going to change my life and stir me up and uh, put the Lord to work in my life like never before. Come with that kind of attitude. Come expecting God to do something. Come praying for the pastor and say, Lord, 
I want you to give him something exactly for me, for my heart today. That's the way you pray. Get you a, de- uh, a, a notebook. Get you a dedicated notebook. By dedicated, I mean not that you prayed over, but buy you a notebook that you keep to come to church with. And take you some notes. And uh, try to look for one thing that's really practical that will help you. I won't give you something that will just astound you every time you walk in the door, but I'll give you something every time you walk in the door. And then you write it down, and five years from now, if you wrote it down, you got it. It'll be the very thing that'll get you through the tough times of life. My wife was home last week. She just said, I don't feel like going. I'm not going to go today. I want to see if you're listening. She said that because she had a sinus infection, and she wasn't able to be here. And she watched Charles Stanley, and she said, Bill, 90% of the people in his audience were taking notes. And I marked that. I thought, yeah, I see our people come. Do they remember on Tuesday anything they got on Sunday? 90% of them, she said, were taking notes. They were trying to get something. You may not get something every time that directly applies, but it will ultimately apply to your life. What I'm saying is, folks, it's time to be serious about your relationship with the Lord. As a Christian, I'm not preaching to unsaved people. I'm preaching to church members right here. I got a card three or four days ago from a former member. She lives in Missouri. Her name is Mary Giles. About half this church remembers Mary Giles. I'll read to you what she put in the card. Pastor, we love you all and appreciate that the Lord left us in Florence for 31 years. The preaching And Bible study gives an FBT member a Bible background worthy of any college Bible class. Through the years, we learned precept upon precept, exegesis of Bible books, looking at current political and life issues in view of the Scripture and practical applications of the Bible. We gained a true love of the local church how it should be run, and its functions in God's overall plan, and our responsibility in that local church, and the joy and the blessing that comes with serving the Lord. I buried their college-age girl who was killed in a traffic accident. I watched Rick fight leukemia. He's still fighting it. I watched him go through terribly hard times, wonderful times, but they never wavered because they had the power and the life that comes from this. Seriously meeting God. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed.